You're listening to the So What Podcast. What is heresy? So the notion is that there's this pre-established uh, orthodoxy, and then the heretics come along and uh, maliciously deviate from that truth. Historically, that just doesn't always bear out. Heresy was worked out in response to orthodoxy, which means that orthodoxy was worked out in response to heresy. It was a real back and forth conversation early on. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Travis is tagging in for Dave Kakish during the series. Speaking of which, here on So What Podcast, we're excited to begin a new series called The Gospel According to the Heretics, where we will be examining various heresies throughout church history as they relate to the orthodox or correct theological beliefs as handed down to us by the preaching and teaching of the apostles. On this first episode of the new series, we are honored to be joined by Dr. David Wilhite. Dr. Wilhite received his Ph.D. from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where he studied patristic theology. He is currently Associate Professor of Theology at the Truett Theological Seminary of Baylor University and is author of the book The Gospel According to Heretics, Discovering Orthodoxy Through Early Christological Conflicts, published by Baker Press. Before we head over to our discussion with Dr. Wilhelm, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast. Well, let's kick off our new series on heresy. Well, Dr. Wilhite, it's a great pleasure to have you here on So What Podcast. Thanks for joining. Oh, thank you, Kyle. I'm honored to be here. Well, we are starting a new series that we're entitling The Gospel According to the Heretics. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, you have literally written the book on that. Yeah, that's a great title you chose. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. I just finished my book last year. They came out, The Gospel According to Heretics with Baker Press. And uh, in that book, I focused on the early Christological heresies, uh, heresies about Christ himself. Yeah, and I love the book. Um, I've made about halfway through. Uh, I, I love it because of how down to earth and easy it is uh, to read it. Usually when you're talking about Christological heresies, uh, those are two words that some people may be put off by. The way that you've written the book is kind of like just having a conversation. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I was, yeah, I, I think I, I mentioned to you when we were setting up this, the potential for this conversation that I actually wrote this uh, out of a course I was teaching. I should have said more then. Um, I, the, the real backstory here is I, 
I sort of teach the heretics this way in my courses on Christian history and theology. Maybe, you know, the revisionist approach to history has, has, has largely won the day in, in my discipline. So um, maybe the heretics weren't such evil, wicked people. Maybe we ought to try to hear them on their own terms. Mm. So when I would teach it that way in the classroom, I, would have, I had one student in particular who went to church with me, and he said, this is, this is great stuff. Every Christian ought to learn this stuff. But why don't you teach it as a Sunday school class in our church? Um, and I was real reluctant to do that, but he finally talked me into it, and I said, okay, if you come with me and you ask the questions, you point us to the relevant biblical passages, I'll do it. So, uh, yeah, we, that's actually where the title came from, is we, we decided to name it The Gospel According to Heretics, uh, and I taught it at my local church, University Baptist Church. Uh, it was a bit tough to explain to my tenure review committee why I'm teaching heresy <laughs> in Sunday school. Uh, right. I got past that hurdle, and yeah. That's, you, here's the final product. You weren't the first one, probably. To, uh, <laughs> exactly. You're just honest about it. That's right. That's, there you go. So with this series being the gospel according to heretics, I, I think the obvious question we need to ask at first is, what is heresy? Sure. I can give you a few ways to answer that. Um, so I tackled this in the introduction to say, what, how is heresy defined in the early church? And the most prominent answer is that heresy is a deviation from truth. So the notion is that there's this pre-established uh, orthodoxy handed down from the time of Jesus and the apostles themselves, and then the heretics come along and uh, at best misinterpret it, at worst maliciously uh, deviate from that truth. I mentioned a while ago that historically that just doesn't always bear out. I mean, if you, if you read the early sources with a critical framework, a lot of people who were called heretics did not... I mean, the Marcionites didn't call themselves Marcionites. Uh, the, the Gnostics or Valentinians didn't call themselves Valentinians. Uh, they just called themselves Christians. So it starts to get uh, pretty messy really fast when you're trying to ask what is heresy as opposed to how do we go about defining heresy. So I, I'm sorry I haven't answered your question yet, but does that make sense so far? <laughs> it does, yeah. That's helpful too. Yeah, so uh, I guess the first thing I would say in a, a series like what you're doing and in w when I approached uh, the work myself— I think it's important to start with the notion that not all heretics are alike, and not all heretics were heretics for the same reasons. And so um, it may be somewhat frustrating to my readers. I start off giving these ways that the early church identified what is a heresy, but then I, I really avoid defining heresy early on, and I just start looking at heresies and try to figure out why did the Orthodox party that emerged, why did they consider these different groups heretics? Um, now, at the end of the, of the chapter, I try, at the end of the book, the last chapter, I do come back and try to define what heresy is. And it's, it's again, I'm, I'm going to pause here because I'm realizing I'm not giving a very simple definition, but that's because I think it's a real complex definition. Heresy mm -hmm. was worked out in response to orthodoxy, which means that orthodoxy was worked out in response to heresy. It was a real back and forth conversation early on. Is there, do you ever run into kind of a, I'm not trying to think of the best way to ask this with the the back and forth. I mean, how, so so how did the early church mediate that back and forth? That's my question. Um, tell not us always that. so well is the is the sad answer. Um, there was a lot of uh, at the least rhetorical violence and sometimes you know Constantinian sanctioned imposition of views. Now. Um, I don't say that to, to dismiss orthodoxy altogether. I mean, I think by the time, you know, in, in my last chapter, I try to make it clear. There is such a thing as orthodoxy. I am personally, I think, aligned with orthodoxy. I confess all the classical beliefs of Christianity. Um, I'm convinced by them. 
but it just wasn't so apparent early on. I think there really was an attempt to have a free exchange of ideas, but it wasn't always so free. So, yeah, for example, in the early Christian centuries, I mean, these were really uh, scattered, diverse communities doing their best to communicate with one another. I mean, they really saw each other as in communion with each other. And so the church in Rome wrote to the church in Corinth and back and forth, and they, they tried to be in communion. And they started to discover there weren't some things that they completely agreed on. And so they had to work these out in various ways. Ultimately, once you have the risk of persecution removed and Constantine comes on the scene, you're able to meet in an ecumenical council and have a, a more of a free exchange of ideas. And so they, they developed these mechanisms through letter writing, through, through bishops meeting together, through councils ultimately of trying to negotiate what is and what is not acceptable. Could you give us maybe a specific example? Yeah. So maybe this, by the end of the book, what I end up saying is that orthodoxy is a response to heresy, which sounds really scandalous, I know, because because I'm, I'm at risk saying that, uh, I mean, heresy precedes orthodoxy and that kind of definition. Um, and that, that can't be right. What, what I did not say there uh, is that I didn't say that uh, heresy precedes the gospel. So the mm. gospel and the revelation of Christ uh, comes first, mm -hmm. but then Christians had to figure out how to articulate that, how to express that, where exactly do we agree and disagree. So um, RPC Hansen wrote a re real influential book on the, on the Arian controversy from the 4th century. That's where we get our first ecumenical councils. And the, his book was called uh, In the Search for the Doctrine of God. And he used that title very intentionally because there was not a pre-established doctrinal explanation of the Trinity in the 4th century. At the Council of Nicaea, several liturgical creeds were put forth that, were, that would hopefully rule out Arianism. They, the bishops generally agreed, we can't say what Arius said. Uh, we have to say God is, the Son is fully God along with the Father, one God. Uh, and then we will add to that the Holy Spirit in, in clarifying. So when the church met in council, the very fact that there is not a pre-established creed or formula to, to rule out Arianism really helps you see poor Arius didn't think of himself as deviating from pre-established truth. Mm -hmm. But then again, that doesn't necessarily make Arius right. I mean, Arius's, uh, Arius's model, I just don't think works. The bishops at that time clearly didn't think it worked. Um, and so they, too, were in search for the doctrine of God. So you might say that the, the process of defining orthodoxy proceeds um, by ruling out the negatives. To oh, exactly. Degree. Yeah. Yeah, I think the We're orthodoxy not sure what... at its best is is apophatic. You know, it's an approach to theology where you say what you cannot say. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, We're not yet sure what to say, but we know we shouldn't say that. <laughs> we know it's not that. <laughs> yeah, well, and we know what to say. We, we confess what we've always confessed. Jesus is Lord. We confess the, you know, the, the essentials of the faith, the apostolic preaching. But then when Arius comes along and says, yeah, Jesus is Lord, he's divine, but not fully divine. You, you try that on for a while, and I think you'll realize this this, this completely changes mm. the story of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So now we rule out that. We still say what we've always said, Jesus is Lord, but we don't say what Arius said. So I run into often in sort of local church context, a sort of resistance to theological labels. Um, we don't have creeds. We just sort of believe the Bible. No creed but Christ. Right. So, yeah. and, 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 and that attitude to some degree is naive, I think, um, given the process that you're, I mean, these, these folks in the, in the first several centuries 
they certainly believed the Bible, but they understood that there ne- they needed to be able to have tests for w- interpretation, how you could, what you could say about the God revealed in the Bible. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how pastors in a context where interest in heresy and even sort of rubber stamping some heretics as valid expressions of early Christianity, there's a lot of that in the air today. How do pastors respond to church members who maybe picked up a book by one of these folks, mm-hmm. an, an airman or, or someone like that? Oh, right. Yeah. Well, let's see. I, I kind of hear two two uh, things going on in that question. Let me take them one at a time. Sure. So as opposed to, the, you know, no labels, no creed uh, but Christ or no creed but the Bible, I'm a Baptist in the Baptist tradition. That's very common, especially in North American Baptists, um, and I hear that a lot. Um uh, I have a. I won't go into my personal view on that because I have no problem with creeds, but I have a very Baptist view of creeds as a free expression of what we believe. Um, and I think the, my worry with people who who don't want to be labeled, who don't want to address certain things, is I. I you mentioned you said this is somewhat naive. I, I, I would say there are some questions that can't be unasked. I mean, so again, back to the early church when Arius, we've given that example when he says that the son. Uh, is a lesser being than the Father. Uh, the rest of the church says the, they're the same being, and this is this controversial word, homoousios, um, same essence. And uh, eventually, Constantine endorses the Orthodox view, because that's what the bishops say. His son, in, in large sense, overturns that view and goes back to a lower essence kind of view. Um, and this just caused a huge rift in the church. Later, the emperors uh, tried out this tactic. They said, okay, don't say... Uh, same being, don't say lesser being, just say just say they're alike, and don't ask in what way. And that made neither party happy. I mean, you just was uh, <laughs> they, that was fine until you, everyone said, okay, the son is like the father, but how? And once you've asked, you say you can't you can't unask that question. Uh, this happened later in the Christology about uh, Nestorius. Does Jesus have two natures or one nature, like Cyril said? Uh, and finally, an emperor came along uh, and said, let's just not say nature at all. Don't say one or two nature. Just say Jesus is one. And that's everybody said, okay, great, but one what? And then the <laughs> problem erupted all over again. Um, you know, so, I mean, just that's, that's what I think um, orthodoxy has done is orthodoxy has already tried out these options. Yeah, I, the idea of not taking on these challenges, uh, I think, is a bit like putting your head in the sand. There, there are questions that are going to come up and you can't. You can't roll back the clock. Um, so as far as pastors who are hearing today about um, how this is discussed, especially by Bart Ehrman and others, yeah, I think there is there is such a strong revisionist approach to early Christian history that it is tempting for people to say, oh, well, see, in early Christianity, you could just believe whatever you wanted to believe. Well, that, too, is a bit naive. And Ehrman doesn't say it that bluntly. Um, he, so there was huge diversity but just how much diversity. So, so I have my students come up to me all the time whenever, um, you know, the latest uh, gospel, apocryphal gospel has been discovered. You know, there was apparently this gospel of Jesus's wife that came out a few years ago. Turns out that that wasn't uh, what we thought it was. But, uh, you know, this created a big stir. And I, honestly, I think it created some anxiety among my students. I told them to go look up the article, go go read the thing for themselves. It's been translated. Um, it, it turns out it's not, it's not all that controversial at all. Jesus uh, talks about Mary. The text is corrupted. A few lines later, Jesus talks about his wife. Text is corrupted. We don't know what he actually said in this fourth century, allegedly fourth century Coptic text. 
Um, and I asked my students, what could he mean? And they all, like the light bulb went off, said, oh, of course Jesus has a bride. The church is his bride. So even if this were authentic, this is nothing that, um, yeah, that uh, overturns the gospel or overturns classical Christian thinking. We just have to admit that in the early church, there was there was a lot of messy debate that happened. But yeah, I say, this is nothing to be afraid of. Go explore it for yourself. I think you'll be surprised how much, in fact, there is unity within all that diversity. That's good. Yeah, there is, I think, in the last couple of years in scholarship, I've seen an interest in we've you know the diversity thing is all over the place, but there are some works coming out you know looking at the unity of early Christianity as well. I think which is encouraging, um, and you have to hold those two in balance to some degree. And and perhaps the question is not run from the diversity, but you know embrace the reality that different people had different ideas. And the question then is where's the boundary? Um, do you have any insight on how we discern those boundaries? Uh, good question. Again, I, my last chapter is trying to explore that. Um, so I don't, it's not as if I, I would give away anything all that tantalizing there. But um, the, the, what I end up saying is that uh, I take the expression from 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, where Paul says there must be, uh, King James says, there must be heresies among you. I mean, it's the Greek word heresies. It's, uh, we always translate it, there must be factions among you. Um, and surprisingly, you can go back and actually see some of the the early Christian writers, the Orthodox party, saying things like, uh, even you know, even among the, va- the the people of God, the Valentinians will say things like so and so. And it's really startling when you stop and, and hear that they, that Tertullian says the Valentinians are among the people of God. Um, so what I end up saying at the end is heresy. Paul is right; there are heresies within the church. And the question really is, how do we negotiate uh, diversity? How much diversity is permitted? And, of course, Paul, uh, again, the person I go to to try to answer this, just because I think that's who my audience, I mean, I'm assuming confessional Christians are reading this book. The um, the answer for Paul is, uh, if anyone preaches another gospel, this is from Galatians, right? Let him be anathema. That's the time you... you, 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 have dismissed someone as heretical, uh, another gospel. So, I mean, most of these heretics that I talk about end up with another gospel. I I try to outline that clearly. Um, But just when to do it, just how much, I mean, so there are a lot of things Christians can be diverse about today. Uh, we, we, We just think in terms of denominationalism as normal. I mean, the sad thing about denominationalism is not that these are heretics, but that this is schism. So, I mean, when you get from, uh, heresy as doctrinal deviation from another gospel to schism as not another Jesus, uh, but diversity within the body of Christ, that's when this shifts and becomes a question of ecclesiology, not Christology. So I conclude by saying, sorry, that's a whole nother book. (laughs) You know, um, what you've been communicating is that a lot of what we know about heresy over orthodoxy in the first few centuries of the church was almost exclusively, if not exclusively, it comes to us by dialogue. So basically reading their letters, reading their arguments, uh, so that most of what we know about heretical proponents in the early church come by reading their arguments. But correct me if I'm wrong, it's not that for a lot of the times we're reading their arguments directly, but that we're reading their opponents' summarizations of their arguments. So, for example, not much is known about Sibelius, uh, and a lot of what is known about Sibelianism comes through arguments that, say, Tertullian made against the modalism or the patropassianism. 
so are we limited in what we can know about heretical positions just based on us having to read it through the lens of their opponents? Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Now, again, this is where you have to take each heresy on a case-by-case basis. For example, with Nestorius, we actually have a, a, a remarkably large amount of things that Nestorius said. Pelagius, I didn't have a chapter on Pelagius just because there wasn't time, and he's not strictly, even though Augustine says he's not, he's a Christological heretic, I, uh, he, he's not strictly such. So uh, I didn't include him, but Pelagius, there's a, a, a surprising amount of things that Pelagius himself wrote that by a simple mistake of history uh, have, have survived. So uh, there are heretics we can read, but you're right. For the most part, once, uh, especially once the empire declares you a heretic, all your books are burned. <laughs> right. So that's that is the reason. That's the that's the validation for doing this revisionist approach to history. Is some history needs to be revised. I mean, I, I know revisionist has a negative connotation. I use that because I think it's accurate. Um, and I and so yeah, we have to take what uh, Tertullian says about Praxius or the modalists or about Marcion or whoever it is they're talking about, uh, we have to take that with a grain of salt. Like, there are some heretics that w- we are terribly uh, uninformed about. So the Ebionites is one that people mm. throw that out, you know, as if it's this clear idea of who the Ebionites are. Uh, I found that the more you try to pin down who are the Ebionites, the, the, the more they recede from view. Um, so not only do their sources not survive, um, even the sources who talk about them are admittedly second and third hand information. And so, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of heresy that we heretics that we can't really recover. Hmm. And even those we can recover, we're often dependent on their opponent's view. And so we have to take that opponent's view with a critical grain of salt. Sure. So what? What's the big deal with heresy anyway? Heresy, according to the Apostle Paul, is any gospel contrary to the one first preached by the apostles. It is the message of God's good news become altered, be it innocently or maliciously, to the degradation of its truthfulness, effectiveness, and power. Learning about heresies helps us better understand the true gospel preached by Christ's first disciples. We recognize that what we call orthodoxy today was developed over time as the church, having been given everything she needed to understand Christ's person and work, fought to keep the gospel's clarity and fidelity. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Dr. Wilhite on asking the question, what is heresy?